0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 73. Well, hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, broadcasting from the amazing province of Alberta, Canada. Well, today is the initiation, I guess officially, of a wonderful series that I'm doing in partnership with my good friend, Reka McNutt, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Calgary. Of course, the beautiful province of Alberta as well. And in this episode, we are going to start our journey um, that relates to immigration hearings and appeals. And traditionally, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about the appeal side of immigration, but sometimes things don't go right. Sometimes as practitioners and as individuals out there, we get our applications refused. And so I thought it only made sense to have a special series devoted to what you do when things go wrong. In this episode, Reka joins me to talk about the Immigration Appeal Division, and in particular, sponsorship appeals. So when you've applied to sponsor a family member and it gets rejected for whatever reason, Reka's gonna talk a little bit about what you do to appeal that decision. So without further ado, let's jump to that interview that I had with Reka. Well, I am back here once again <clears throat> to continue forward with our special series that we are doing uh, for all of our listeners on immigration hearings and appeals. And I am here with my guest, my special guest, who's really the knowledge person. I'm just the uh, uh, the person who's trying to bring some order and direction to this. But uh, Rekha McNutt, I'm really pleased to have you back joining me to be the substantive expert on this topic. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited about the series that we're going to do.
0: Yeah, this is entirely in your wheelhouse. Um, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: when I have is, an issue, is a lot of what I do. yes. <laughs> when I when I have these issues, yeah, you're the first person that I call. So when we decided to uh, to proceed with this, uh, I was super super happy that you're willing to uh, to do this. And let's face it, this is uh, this takes a lot of time. And yep. uh, we were just talking today about how I think I had seven consultations today and trying to blend this in with a bunch of other things I have going on and. We tried once before, and the client needs and everything kind of overtook. So, yeah, this, that's right.
1: But I'm I'm glad we finally got together, and I think these are important things to talk about, and I think they'll be very helpful. So I'm glad we could uh, we could get this taped.
0: Excellent. All right. Taped. So, I'm aging myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it is kind of taped, isn't it? It's not a live show. Maybe one day we'll be adventurous uh, and decide to do something live, like a a, a, a live YouTube. Uh, we could totally do it too. You know. I've got the capability. <laughs> we'll keep Maybe this as a recording. Maybe one day we can't even make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep this Let's, as a recording. Step out of time. All right. So today, as you can see from the the title, uh, those of you who are who are tuning in, um, whether through iTunes or uh, just listening to, to it on the Canadian Immigration Podcast website, is all about uh, the IAD, and uh, we are going to be emphasizing and focusing on sponsorship appeals. So. Uh, Rick, why don't you just start us off a little bit, just as a reminder, some of our practitioners and those tuning in may not fully understand what the IAD is and what it does, and and uh, just start us off with an overview.
1: Sure, that'd be great. Um, so in Canada, we've got something called the Immigration and Refugee Board, the IRB, which is an overarching board that deals with immigration matters in Canada. And that board has four different divisions. And those are the Immigration Division, the Immigration Appeal Division, the Refugee Protection Division, and the Refugee Appeal Division. And so we're going to be talking about all of those divisions and the different things that they do. But for today's purposes, we're going to be talking about the Immigration Appeal Division or the IAD, which, as the name suggests um, here's appeals on a variety of different matters. And I think we've decided for today, we're going to focus on sponsorship appeals at the IAD.
0: Exactly. All right. So so in terms of the IAD, like what does it deal with? You know, what types of things uh, will come before the IAD?
1: So uh, generally speaking, we're going to be dealing with sponsorship appeals and that can either involve a sponsorship of a spouse children or parents and grandparents or really any any relatives, anybody under the, what's called the family class, or there's uh, what's called removal order appeals. And uh, somebody in Canada could get a removal order for a number of different reasons, misrepresentation, criminality for permanent residents who are not meeting their residency obligations. So, most kinds of removal order appeals get heard by the IAD as well. So those are the two sort of main branches of the types of appeals that the IAD hears.
0: Excellent. And I think it's all, I'll just point out as well that we're going to cover sponsorships today, but we also are going to cover the removal order appeals as well in later episodes. So you'll have to tune in for those as we work our way through them. Okay. Um, We've got the sponsorships. We've got the removal order appeals. We've got the things that kind of help you to determine whether you're in or out. Um, why don't we just jump right into the process? So, you know this this all starts obviously when us or our clients receive this lovely letter from the government that says, "Hey, um, too bad, so sad. I'm not buying it. Take a hike."
1: Exactly. And I think it starts a little bit before that. It starts when somebody in Canada who's a permanent resident or a citizen makes an application to sponsor a family member. And oftentimes that's either a spouse or, or parents. And those are the two main categories of sponsorships that we tend to deal with. Um, and Sometimes those applications get refused and they can be refused for a number of reasons, but typically uh, spouses get refused because immigration or an officer doesn't believe that the marriage is genuine or that it was entered primarily for that person to come come to Canada, to immigrate to Canada. And in in the case of parents and grandparents, the primary reason usually is medical because of their age. So what happens when a visa office refuses is the sponsor gets a letter saying, we've refused your application to sponsor these people. And the applicants, the people overseas, the family members get a, a corresponding letter saying your application for permanent residence has been refused. And it's at that point when those refusal letters are received by the applicants and the sponsors is when the right to appeal to the IAD is triggered.
0: Gotcha. So, okay. So you get the letter. Um, I'm assuming there's timelines associated with this. You know, you've got a certain period of time to actually figure out what you're going to (laughs) do.
1: Yep. You're right. Um, And they're not long timelines. So with sponsorship appeals, you've got 30 days from the date that the refusals were received. So it's not the date on the letter, but the date that you receive the letters. Now, having said that, you know, back in the day, it used to be they used to be mailed to you, so you'd get them, you know, two weeks, three weeks later, depending on what part of the world you lived in. But those letters m- mainly come by email now, so you're receiving them instantly. And um, so 30 days starts to run from the moment that you receive those letters. Um, but it's not, you know, starting the IED appeal is not complicated. There's not a lot required. So although there's only a month to do it, it's it's very very doable.
0: So, all right, let's let's talk about some of the challenges with that. Um, I'm waiting for this email or a response on my application and I never get it. I don't hear anything. It's, it's like months after the 12-month processing and I, you know, I just haven't heard anything. And so I reach out, I call the call center, and they said, oh, that was refused four months ago. You received an email, but I uh-huh. didn't. I didn't receive that email. So you're saying it starts from the 30 days from the date that you received that decision. Yes. Um, and and now I go back and it must have gone to my junk folder in my email. So what options are available for people in those circumstances when clearly they're well beyond the thirty days? Does the you know, does the government show mercy? Does the court show mercy? The IED show mercy?
1: You can always make an application for an extension of time and at that point you would have to submit some evidence in terms of um why you wouldn't have received that email? right away. Sometimes emails don't come through. Sometimes Mm -hmm. immigration says they've sent an email and no one has received it, and I've seen that happen. So, just because it was sent doesn't mean it was necessarily received. But if it's a junk mail situation, I think it might be a little bit more difficult in in that it was sent to you, but at the same time, if you didn't see it, have you received it? Mm -hmm. And so, I think the argument can still be made So to say that I received this on this date and not when it was actually sent to me into my email. Now, the um, IAD can always take the position that that's not credible or that's, you know, we just don't accept that you didn't check your junk mail for four months after <laughs> the, yes. the decision was sent. Yeah. But it could 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 happen. So you could definitely make an application um, if that becomes an issue to try to get uh, an extension of time to file that that application or and, the appeal.
0: And that is to the IAD?
1: That is to the IAD, yes.
0: Okay, perfect. All right, so... That didn't happen. <laughs> we received the refusal letter yes. We recog- with, with the instructions. And yes. um, so take us forward from here.
1: So the appeal refusal or the refusal letters from the visa office are sent along with a notice of appeal, it's called. It's a form that the sponsor fills out. So the sponsor is a person who files the appeal. They're called the appellant. So the sponsor has 30 days to do that and they fill out the notice of appeal form, and they write on that form what kind of appeal it is, so who, you know, what kind of an application is it that was refused, who are the applicants, so whether that's the spouse or whether that's the sponsor's parents or grandparents, and then um, they put a little bit more information, like whether they have a representative, what their address is, do they need translation for the hearing, um, and finally, what date the decision was refu- received on by the by the sponsor and the applicants, or the sponsor mainly. And then that form has to get sent to the Immigration Appeal Division. And what's important to know is every major centre has uh, a hearings office, so I can go to a hearing in Calgary. But for purposes of sending these documents, they go to a regional office. So there are certain regional offices that cover a larger geographic area than just one city. So the place that I have to send my notices of appeal to is in Vancouver. And Vancouver covers all of British Columbia and Alberta, and if I'm not mistaken, Saskatchewan and Manitoba as well. So it's really important to know what region you have to file your notice of appeal to um, so that it gets sent to the right place and it's not your local office. But the sponsor can fax that in. So it's not a, an onerous career requirement or originals required. They can fax it in. Um, and once that is faxed in, that's how the appeal process is considered to have started. And the sponsor should, within, uh, I would say, maybe a month or so, get a letter back from the IAD just acknowledging that their notice of appeal was received, giving them a file number and saying they'll they'll advise on what the next steps are. And the next steps are to wait for certain things to happen.
0: Okay, so how long do you have to wait for these next <laughs> things to happen?
1: So the next part that uh, we wait for, so there's nothing really that happens in those those first few months except the waiting. What we're waiting for is something called the Certified Tribunal Record. And the Certified Tribunal Record is put together by... Uh, the Department of Immigration, and it's essentially a full copy of the sponsorship file that's, that exists at the visa office. So all the forms that you submitted, all the supporting documents that you provided, but most importantly, we also get what's called the GCMS notes. And these are the visa office notes where we can finally read the officer's reasons for why they decided to refuse this application. Because a refusal letter will be fairly... Um, vague and form. (laughs) It's a form letter saying we're refusing, but you really don't know why. So once we get the tribunal record, that's really the first point at which if I'm involved, I sit down with a client and go through those GCMS notes and say, what happened at the interview? Let's go through this. And why would your spouse say this and this and this? And so that's the first frank discussion to be had as to what went wrong and whether it's salvageable at this point at the IAD.
0: So is there any advantage to requesting those GCMS notes in advance of getting this CTR?
1: Um, I don't know that there's an advantage necessarily because there's nothing lost by simply waiting for them during the appeal process. So it takes a few months to get, but you also get a full copy of the, the file itself. And if I'm not the one who's done the underlying application and if, you know, for example, it's somebody who's done their own application, oftentimes people don't keep records. People don't keep a full copy of the application's that have been submitted. So it's hard to work from pieces. So it's 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 nice to get this complete record from the tribunal, which has everything in it, including the notes. And uh, it's great to go through those documents, those notes together with the client.
0: Okay. So, okay, so you've got the notes, you've got the package, you you as, as counsel go through it with a fine tooth comb. Yes. And when you identify, <coughs> excuse me, identify the problem areas, Then you bring the client in and, and, and you, I, you know, basically you go through and talk to them about what really were the main problem areas in the application. Um, You know, what, what are some of the things, strategies that you use to, you know, to kind of pull out what's really important and, and help your clients to understand what they need to do to help you be successful with this?
1: I go through the GCMS notes primarily with the clients. And oftentimes when there's been a refusal, there's, usually an interview. So it's very rare that a a spousal sponsorship especially would get refused without an interview happening. And so something went dramatically wrong at the interview typically. So I usually get the sponsor into my office because they're typically local and we phone the spouse abroad and we have And by this point, everyone's looked at the notes and reviewed them ahead of the meeting. And we sit down and we go through it from beginning to end. And and I ask them, why would you have said this? Well, I I thought they meant this or, you know, I was scared to tell the truth about this. So uh, typically people have explanations for why they've said what they've said. Sometimes it's a matter of not having enough proof of something. So, you know, if it's a very traditional marriage from some countries where there might be arranged marriages, for example, and there's insufficient evidence of family support, you know, that raises some red flags. So maybe we talk about, well, why isn't there family support in the situation? Mm-hmm. Is there, and did you just not provide that evidence to the visa office?
0: So just to clarify, family support, you're saying, why did none of your family or your spouse's family actually come to the wedding?
1: Exactly. Yeah and there's a bunch of different reasons why that could happen. There's a lot of people who don't like their family. They're estranged from their family, or it could be a situation where the family genuinely did not support this marriage, but that doesn't make it any less genuine. Yeah. So just, you know, going through all of the problems that the visa officer had to see how we can resolve them on appeal in front of a, a member of the IAD in Canada.
0: Okay. Okay. So you you're, you're preparing. What's next? What's next
1: is, um, Uh, Sometimes, now this used to happen a lot more when appeals in Calgary were taking, you know, 18 to 24 months to get a hearing date. A conversation I would have with the the clients after reviewing the CTR and the GCMS notes was to see whether we could have a good chance of resolving whatever problems existed by filing a new application. So I'll give you an example of where that might be. Ideal. I had a client once who came to me, had a refused appeal, and the reason it was refused is because she didn't have proof that she had properly divorced her first husband before marrying the current husband. So they said, we don't think your current marriage is legally valid because you weren't divorced from husband number one. So it wasn't based on the genuineness or anything like that, but just we don't think you're legally spouses, so you can't sponsor this person. Well, something like that, if we can get proper documentation to show the divorce from husband one was properly done, she was properly divorced before she married husband two, that can be very easily resolved by going back to the visa office and and refiling a new application. Now, that made sense when it took more time to get to an appeal versus refiling, Nowadays, I'm getting appeal dates within about seven months of filing the notice of appeal. So, seven, eight months, which is shorter than many visa offices making decisions. So, now in that same situation, I would probably tell them, now nah, continue with the appeal. We'll deal with this issue on appeal rather than go back to the visa office. So, then we talk about what are the next steps. And I tell them, I give them a list of Of documents that we're going to need to support the application. And I should add at this point that an appeal in front of the IAD is considered de novo. That means it's an appeal from scratch. So they can look at all of the evidence from the beginning to present day or to the point of the appeal. They're not stuck with what the visa officer has said or looked at. They can look at everything from the beginning. So We can rely, certainly rely on the documents that were provided on uh, the application itself to the visa office, but it's really important to update those applications because by the time we get to the hearing, it'll have been probably two years since the original sponsorship application was made. And so, you know, updated proof of relationship documents, trips back home, um, documents to address any issues that were identified in the GCMS notes, all of that is sort of brainstormed at this meeting, this initial meeting, or maybe the second meeting I have after reviewing the CTR with the clients. Um, And then they start getting those together because sometimes it takes time to get them all together and to get proper documents, good documents in place. So we start that process from there.
0: I'm going to ask you, this this is going to take us in a little bit of a different direction, but... Let's go back to your example that you've given. And I think as practitioners, we do run into these situations. So as we look at things, we, you know, the client realizes, oh, you know what? Actually that divorce didn't officially get registered until after Uh I was, you know, I entered into that second marriage. So that spurs two different issues that you have to address. Yes. One you know is that person then guilty of of bigamy mm-hmm. um, and, and and two, is there any way to save that situation you know w- without having to go back and well unravel things and and do it i know, think un- there's gonna there's a
1: lot of unraveling <laughs> <laughs> um so and if the person is not legally divorced from spouse one and marries spouse two before being divorced, then then marriage two is considered void from the outset. It was never valid, which means you were never legally married to spouse number two per Canada's laws. Now, I know a lot of countries allow multiple marriages, right. but according to our laws, you're not legally married to your second spouse. Where this gets tricky is... Um, You can certainly go and divorce spouse one. That's really the simplest part of this entire puzzle. And what a lot of people don't realize is if you've lived in Canada for at least 12 months in any province, you can get divorced in Canada, even if your spouse lives abroad. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So that's the easy part. Get divorced from spouse number one. Now you're legally divorced. But then what do you do with your spouse number two that you've already married once and you thought... (laughs) whether wrongly or rightly that you were you were legally married to that person. I th- there's no clear way to deal with this for me and I think it depends a lot on the country that they come from. So if they come from a country that's got similar legal systems to Canada, I think what the ideal thing to do would be to get a court order annulling that marriage or declaring it void because of the and explaining why and I think a court would grant such an order and then just have a new civil wedding or ceremony to have a legal marriage again. I think that would be the simplest way to deal with it. The other way, if that's just not possible, or they come from countries where it's not easy to get these things done, would be to refile a new application under what is called the conjugal partner category. Uh And that's a really odd category. Uh, So there's, you know, you can sponsor somebody who you're legally married to. You can sponsor a common law partner, which means you've lived in a marriage-like relationship with them for at least a year. And there's this third category that's really never used or not very frequently used called the conjugal partner category. And a conjugal partner is somebody who you would be in a marriage with or be common law with, but for whatever circumstances, you can't. So maybe that's because you can't rectify this old divorce or maybe that's because your country's the country your spouse comes from doesn't allow the kind of relationship that you you two would have. So that's certainly something that could be possible but that would require a lot of explanation about why it's being filed under the conjugal category. I should add though if that's the problem that we're running into with the IAD the IAD will not switch categories uh, during the appeal. Okay. So that's important to keep in mind. So, you know, if it was under the spouse category and now you're saying I want to sponsor I want to do the appeal under the conjugal, they're not going to entertain that. They'll say refile the application and then see what happens.
0: All right. <laughs> that was a little that bit gets of a ta- complicated. <laughs> that was a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> (laughs) Okay, let's pull back into a normal. (laughs) We're continuing (laughs) forward down the road here. So what's next in in the normal course of things?
1: You know, you say normal, but I think a lot of times (laughs) things go on these tangents and problems come up that nobody anticipated. And it it seldom seems as straightforward as it is. And I I should say, if you're at the appeal process, you're probably not straightforward because you're there. There's something's gone wrong. Something's messy. Mm -hmm. So. We can Fair call enough. it typical, I guess, yeah. typical appeals. Yes. And we're sort of focusing on the spousal side of things because that is the bulk of what the the IED deals with in terms of sponsorships. But we can touch on parents and grandparents as well and, and the kind of evidence that we can use in that kind of context. Yeah. So um, I think we were talking about after the meeting with the clients, reviewed yes. the CTR. Uh, what do we do next? And so I send them away with this list of documents to start get gathering for me. And I also tend to, at that point, schedule some preparation meetings. And at that point, I just schedule a couple just to get a sense of how the clients are. Um, some people need a lot more hand holding and preparation than other clients do. So I, those initial couple of meetings let me give me a sense of what kinds of clients those are people are and what kind of help they're going to need in order to get properly prepared for their hearing. The other thing we also brainstorm is whether it would be helpful to have other witnesses besides the two people who are involved in a, in a spousal situation. And in the case of a parental situation, um, we talk about, well, why was a parental file refused? It's typically not because of the relationship which is easily established. You're born to someone that are your parents or you're adopted by someone that are your parents. So in parent situations, like I mentioned, it's usually medical, but sometimes it's criminality. I've had that come up as well. So we've got to have a discussion about whether, A, we can go to the IAD and if it's a medical issue, we talk about was it a fair decision at the visa office? You know, is it actually a medical inadmissibility problem? Is it an excess demand problem? And I won't go into what all of that means. We can probably do a separate inadmissibility topic, but, um, um, you know we talk about if it's if it is a genuine problem, you know the parent has a very serious illness that will cost a lot of money. Let's talk about some humanitarian things. What can we show on a humanitarian front that would convince the Iad to let them come despite them maybe costing more money to Canada's health care than the average Canadian would, you know? If it's a criminality issue, we need to look at what what is the the crime that they've been accused of? being guilty of? Or is it a conviction? Or is it, you know, exploring what it is exactly? Is it equivalent in Canada to something? And how do we deal with overcoming the criminality problem? And can we even ask for humanitarian considerations? So the discussion in a parent file is quite a bit different than what happens in a a spousal file. But that discussion still happens and they go away and they start collecting documents. And um, the next thing we wait for from the IAD. Um, is to get a hearing date to have the appeal heard. Now, sometimes um, the full appeal is the end of the road. So you go to this full hearing and I can, I'll explain what that entails. But on certain files, it might be um, beneficial or useful to try to resolve the matter early. And some files are really well suited for this, and the processes for resolving files early are either written submissions, so written arguments by the parties as to why something should be be dealt with on paper rather than, you know, taking everyone's time to go to a hearing, um, or by something called an alternate dispute resolution process (ADR), and that's just an early resolution option on certain files.
0: So, who decides these things, Rika? Like, who 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 decides? <clears throat> paper application, or or does everyone have an opportunity for an ADR?
1: Uh, Who decides? The uh, the IAD, the board decides whether to grant these or not. But I tend to make the request if I think a file is appropriate for one of these processes. And I'll give you an example of where I would ask for a paper application, where I would ask for an ADR. For a paper application, recently I had a a client retain me for an IAD matter, he was sponsoring his his parents, um, and at the time they were living in Australia. They're Filipino nationals. They were living in Australia. The parents were, and um, the the parents had a falling out. Mm-hmm. The mom was in a very abusive situation, and the they split up. And um, they were asked to submit medicals. The mom did, and the dad didn't because he's now estranged to the family. Ah. And they assume that if they just didn't submit his, that they would remove him from the application and process mom and everyone would be fine. Well, they refused the whole thing because they said, you didn't give us what we asked for. The dad didn't provide medicals.
0: That that area, just to catch you off, freaking drives me crazy in the context of non-accompanying dependence on other applications. It is in the, the most
1: painful yeah. in process- this case, so, in this case, Omar, oh they didn't tell him he was going to be non-accompanying. They just decided yeah, yeah. if we ignore the situation. <laughs> I agree. And I think he did a recent Facebook Live about non-accompanying defendants, uh. if I'm not mistaken. But that is a whole, whole other problem. <laughs> yeah. But in this one, they just didn't tell immigration that they didn't want to bring dad. Um, they just thought, if you know, if we ignore it, the problem will go away. Fair and it enough. didn't. And they refused mom as well. And so now we're at the IAD. But really, there's no issues beyond She didn't, dad didn't do medicals. There was, she was fine. She did her medicals. There was no problems. And so I've asked, I've made written submissions to the IED to say, mom will do, redo medicals. And we've put in documents to show that they're separated because they're from the Philippines. They can't divorce, but there's court records for a formal separation. So we've put all this in to say, we'd like dad deleted from the application. We just want mom to come. And there really is nothing else to discuss on appeal at a hearing. So why can't we just resolve this by paper?
0: paper. That makes sense.
1: So that's an example of when I would use a paper application. I'm still waiting to hear back from the board on that, but we'll see what they say. Hmm. Um, wow. The other, for for an ADR, so alternate dispute resolution, that's a process where um, there there's no member. So this is a sort of a... a discussion and it's off the record, meaning anything you say at the ADR will not be used against you at the hearing. But it's a really good opportunity for the sponsor to see if they can resolve this early. The it has to be for a good case though because the ADR at the ADR only the sponsor participates. So they don't talk to the applicant who is the person overseas. And so it has to be a case where the issues can be resolved by talking to the sponsor alone. Um, and the last ADR I did was for a fellow from South Sudan, I believe. And the issue was whether his marriage was legal again. So it was It was not on the genuineness, but whether it was a legal marriage and we could get the right paperwork and he could explain, the sponsor could explain all of the processes and the customs that were involved. And we didn't need to talk to his wife to verify those. And so that was a good situation for an ADR where the talking to the sponsor alone alleviated the minister's concerns.
0: Okay, well, <clears throat> this podcast is obviously an opinion-based podcast where we can pretty much say whatever we want. (laughs) So give me your honest opinion as to the effectiveness of ADRs and and whether the government plays fair in these types of things and whether it's even worth your time. I asked that just from the limited experience I've had. Um, It was a complete and total waste of time. And uh, it was, I didn't even, the hearings officer, it was like they didn't even want to be there. The questions they asked were just stupid and irrelevant. And they never went to the heart of any issue, but it was essentially, they were sitting in the chair asking these leading introductory questions. You know, where did you live? Confirm your address. All of this information that was just, you could see there was, it was never going to be resolved in an hour. And this is after we drove two and a half hours up from Lethbridge for the hearing and, um, you know, and had good packages and information there. It was just a waste. So, what's having done many more of these than than my limited uh, sample size? What, what's your experience being? And obviously, I'm referring to to Calgary and not you know. Uh, I don't know what the experience is in other areas, but what's your thoughts?
1: I think we've had the, uh, these discussions at our national conferences too. There's been there's always resistance from m- the ministers' representatives to do ADRs, and I so the right minister's representative is certainly crucial to a successful ADR. And a lot of times there isn't buy-in from, from them. And if there isn't buy-in from them, that's not going to work. That's they have, they have the full control at an ADR and you as the uh, sponsor's lawyer play virtually no role during that process. You don't have an impact on the outcome. You can't speak. You can't ask questions. You're sort of just there to watch. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Um, getting the wrong minister's rep is certainly a problem, but I think it's still useful. And it's useful because the client has exposure to providing evidence and you prepare them and they go and answer these questions from somebody who they perceive as being on the other side or adversarial. So it's a good practice run, if nothing else.
0: Good point. And that was the one thing that I found beneficial was I could see how Absolutely, terribly awful. My client actually did <laughs> in trying exactly. to answer questions, and uh, <coughs> and the biggest issue that that. That the one that I tended was the fact that uh, trying to be succinct and only answer the question asked, as opposed to telling your whole life story five hundred times over and over, that was it. That was a big issue. So we were able to work on it, which was exactly which was really good when the time. It gives you a good payment. insight as
1: to how they're going to behave at the at the actual appeal. So it's a good dry run, and and like I said, it's it's confidential. So nothing that happens there will be used against you at the hearing. So it's it's a dry run.
0: Excellent. Okay, so. Obviously, the 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 uh, third option is is the full hearing.
1: Mm-hmm. So the the appeal board, when there's a lawyer on the file or a representative on the file, the IAD or a clerk from the from the IAD from the registry will phone you when it's ready to be scheduled and get a, so you get to pick a time and a day that works for you. And when you're unrepresented, as far as I know, the, the board will just schedule it and tell the person when to show up. But when there's a rep on file, they realize schedules are difficult. And so they'll phone you and say, you know, these are the dates that we're looking at. And it'll usually be a few months down the road. So you've got lots of notice and they'll schedule that, uh, that hearing. Sometimes it's a half day hearing, sometimes it's a full day hearing, depending on the issues and whether there's interpretation required. And so they'll schedule that and they'll send you a, what's called a notice of appearance or notice to appear in the mail or in, by email. And um, and you need to let your client know that that's the date that their hearing is going to happen. And that's your, your, now you have an end goal. So this is when you really need to start preparing your client to uh, be ready for that hearing. And the preparation involves lots of meetings to go through the types of questions that they might get at their appeal and really finalizing the support documents that we're going to be submitting to the board. Excellent. So in terms of the, um, the preparation meetings, I tend to run through a series of questions that I anticipate the board member will, will have for them. It's never the same uh questions but I do follow sort of a a formula of how I go through a certain series of questions now at the IAD the questioning as the appellant's lawyer I do the questioning first so I get to ask all of the witnesses their questions first the minister then asks their questions and and the member can interrupt at any point and ask questions but um and they can also ask questions at the end once everybody's done. And so I go through all of the questions that I'm going to ask my client and all of the witnesses, and that should flow seamlessly by the time you get to the appeal. Because you've done this so many times, they should be very familiar with the questions. And the first couple of meetings where I go through these questions, it's rough. It's rough. And people people don't know how to answer questions, and it's... Um, it's something that needs to be practiced, and it's—it's um, it's not that you're you're telling them what to say, but it's more, you know, listen to what the question is. This, you're not you're not answering exactly what's being asked of you. When you do that, you sound evasive. You're you sound like you're trying to avoid the question. So really listen to what you're being asked. Um, trying to teach people how to tell their story in a way that is succinct but detailed at the same time, doesn't go on too many tangents, but still provides enough details. All of that um, is um, part of the preparation process for training people how to how to give evidence which is really not a natural thing for most people to do um, and if there's other witnesses that we need to prepare, we do the same process with them that tends to be a little bit more uh, concise but at the same time they need to, they're there because they're going to add some value to the process so we prepare with them in, in in a similar way
0: and I imagine one of the complicating aspects is if you need a translator mm-hmm. and I can see. And, you know, based on my experience as well, when you have individuals keeping their answers much more succinct, direct on point, not rambling, it makes it a whole lot easier for the translator to try to to actually translate accurately Yes, such that it's, uh, you know, that they're actually serving a, a proper purpose instead of, yeah, just trying to summarize, which is not good.
1: Yes. Yeah. So translators are tricky. And I uh, sometimes when a client comes in and their their language skills, English language skills are good and they can communicate with me, I might do a few prep sessions just in, in English. But if I know that they're going to be using an interpreter at the hearing, I'll do a couple of sessions with an interpreter because giving answers through an interpreter is very different. And you alluded to this. So if you're giving a long answer about how did you meet your spouse and you're going to go on for five minutes, that interpreter is not going to remember five minutes worth of conversation. So they're going to, you're going to force yourself or train yourself to talk in short pieces and tell your story in short pieces and learn where to pause and where does it make sense to pause so the interpreter can exactly translate what you're saying. And so practicing with an interpreter is really important. And oftentimes for those prep meetings, clients will bring in friends or family members who can translate for them. And a lot of the times that's a cost issue. But I try to get, at least for one preparation meeting, a stranger. And I get a stranger to translate because they don't know the story. And when you get a friend or a family member who's helping and they're familiar with your story, they can add things unconsciously usually that the person who's actually talking missed. And that's not helpful to me because I don't understand that they've done that. But moreover, I won't know that the my client isn't saying that. And when I get to the hearing, I'll be surprised when, you know, in preparation, they've given me this long story and we get to the hearing and they're omitting all of these important details that I heard them say in preparation. <laughs> but really that was the interpreter telling me <laughs> the story.
0: Yeah, that's a so, that's a very good point.
1: So it's good to have a stranger into the picture. And then it really becomes clear when they miss important details because the translator doesn't understand what they're trying to say. Yeah. So,
0: Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's impossible to you know, to listen to someone for five minutes and then try to translate exactly what was said. And yeah. I also found that for my clients, one of the benefits of a translator is it gives them an opportunity to think a little bit more about the question that was asked. Uh-huh. So they yeah. hear it in English and the translator then translates it. So they get a chance to hear it twice and, and think about it a little bit more. And and so if, you know, if there is, sure, your client might have a pretty good grasp of, of English, but if... Um, You know, sometimes the questions are tough and and how you answer them, if you don't have those exact words in English, Mm -hmm. you can use a word that you think covers off what you intend and it's not the right word. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah,
1: I had one, and this happened with a translator at the hearing and the question was, it was Punjabi and I had a colleague with me. I don't speak Punjabi or understand it, but I had a colleague who does and she was just observing with me. And um, the question from the minister to the sponsor was, "Are you planning to have children?" Um, and I think the translation was, um, "Do you uh, do you want children?" Or so like the, there was yes. some small variation in the question, and the answer came back no. And I thought they clearly are. Why would she say no? Right. And then my colleague told me the the nuanced difference in the translation, um, and that's what made the client give a completely. Baffling answer, and so translation is really, really important.
0: So, what room I, do you have to, to try to correct that?
1: Well, my most of my clients, the sponsors, anyway, speak enough English to know when something might not have been translated properly. So, I tell them to pay attention, and um, and they should be familiar with with all the preparation that we do. If the the answers that are coming back in English are not um, what What's coming out in preparation? That should alert them that something's ha- something's going wrong in the translation. And I've I've told them you need to speak up and say something if you notice errors in translation because we need to make a fuss at the hearing and not afterwards. So I tell my clients to pay attention to that because I'm I'm not I mo- I don't speak any other languages so yes. I'm not useful to them in in yeah. knowing whether something's not being translated properly. Gotcha. But for my end, I clue in if the answer that's coming back to me in English is much different than what was coming out in preparation. Yeah. That leads me to think whether my client's gone crazy or am I losing something in translation. <laughs> yes.
0: Or the or your client gives, you know, the 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 long-winded answer and the translation is like three words.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we could go into all aspects of preparation, how to deal with these issues. You know, how to. Uh, you know, the, there's so many different directions that we can go when we're talking about this. But we we just we clearly don't have time to to yeah. to treat that all. And it's like a full day course that could be offered. But maybe just before we we continue forward a little bit here um, with the process side of things, which is really what we're trying to teach people about and help them mm-hmm. understand, because everything is case specific. When you're identifying witnesses, um, in in the context of a, a spousal appeal, like is there a right number? And um, you know, when you're trying to select individuals, who are the best types of, of 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 witnesses? You know, is it the best friend? Is it is it you know your parents? You know, because you know, is there another? relatively independent person that's better situated than someone who has an invested interest, you know, how do you, you know, obviously the person themselves, you, you know, you're going to want them, the applicant to, to, uh, you know, to address the member, but what, um, is there any kind of rule of thumb that you, you follow
1: for the For most of my appeals, it, the witnesses are usually only the sponsor and the applicant. So the two people who are married to each other are my two witnesses for the vast majority of my sponsorship appeals. Where I'll, I'll think about getting other witnesses in, in, um, in a spousal context, are usually children. And if, if either party has children who are a little bit older and can talk about, and, and children have an innocence to them. Because they're, you know, they, they will truly tell you how they feel about people. And so I have called, you know, the sponsor's children as witnesses to say, to talk about what kind of relationship they have with their new step parent, their stepmother or stepfather that isn't in Canada. You know, how often do you talk to them? How does that person make your parent happy? You know, um, all of those kinds of things. And uh, I find children provide uh, a really innocent and truthful. Um, perspective to the relationship. But again, it depends on the child. I mean, if they're teenagers, then then absolutely. I would consider calling them as witnesses. But if they're, you know, younger than 10, then I, I don't know how useful they may be. But it depends mm-hmm. on the child. I have called... Um, adult children in the past for an older couple who is getting married, because at that point um, it's adult children who do get involved in what is their perspective and how are they involved with the new spouse and what are their feelings. Um, I have called parents or, you know, in arranged marriage situations, the person who's making those arrangements, the middleman or whatever you want to call them in terms of explaining how uh, or why the match was made. But in terms of witnesses, I don't always call live witnesses, but I do get affidavits or statutory declarations from people who I think might be able to give useful information on a particular situation, um, but maybe don't have a lot to say in terms of being called live. So I'll get, I'll put those affidavits or statutory declarations as part of my, my disclosure, but I, I don't necessarily want to call them as witnesses.
0: Perfect. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So, as far as the process itself, before we get into the outcomes, is there any other tips or kind of suggestions or things that a practitioner can do um, to really make the process uh, uh, more effective, uh, increase chances of success? Is there anything that we haven't really talked about? Now, obviously, it's determined on how you know how much preparation you do and how important preparation is. But uh-huh. um, aside from you know evidence and, and the witnesses that you're bringing forward is there anything that that you found as you know a strategy or otherwise that really has helped?
1: I, I think uh, this ties into preparation but not doing things at the last minute so w- once an appeal is started that's really when you start preparing the file and not wait until you know a month prior to the hearing to start preparing the whole thing. And I've seen that happen. I've seen files come to me that have been refused at the IAD. And then we're looking at a court appeal or a court application because nobody was prepared. Everything was rushed and it was a mess. And of course it failed. So I think preparation is absolutely key. But part of that is also not to procrastinate until the last minute to do that preparation. So I think that's how you best serve your client is by, by doing all of these things on a, on a regular and ongoing basis from the point that you get retained to the point of that hearing.
0: That 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 makes a lot of sense to me. All right, so you you go through the process, and um, I guess there's a decision.
1: Well, maybe we'll touch base a little bit on what happens at the hearing. Yeah, do. So at the hearing, the um, appellant, the sponsor, is there with their representative if they have one. There is a representative on behalf of immigration. There is a member who may be there live or who may be there by video conference. And if there's a translator, that person's there as well. And again, they might be there live or by video. Then there's always people that we have to phone. And those are the people who are not yet in Canada, the people who got their visa refused, the applicants. And the IED is now rolling out processes for where we can now video call people which is, you know, it's 2019 and video calling should be very common, but this is a very new concept for the IAD to be undertaking. Um, And so you can either telephone them and have a audio phone call or you can video phone with the person abroad. And that's how that person testifies over the phone. And it can get quite messy with phone lines and connections and so on. But once you get to the hearing, uh, the member will introduce uh, the, the the hearing to the parties involved. Uh, she'll explain what the process entails. She'll swear the witnesses in. And the order of questioning is, is first of all, the appellant um, and then the applicant and then any other witnesses that um, you want to call. And it's really important not to have those witnesses in the hearing room while the appellant is testifying. And the reason for that is you don't want their evidence to be tainted. You don't want them to hear what the appellant has said before they give their own evidence. So they always wait in the waiting area until it's time for them to come in and testify. Once all of the questioning is done, um, the member will always look to the minister and say, "Has your position changed? And that just means after hearing all of this, do you agree that this is this should be allowed? Should this appeal be allowed? And the minister can always say, Yes, I, I have changed my mind. We, sh- we will consent to this appeal, which means you've succeeded. But if they say, No, I still have concerns, what happens next is both parties, myself as a, the appellant's rep and the minister's rep, give written or uh, oral submissions about why our positions should succeed. So I would make submissions about why the appeal should be allowed, the minister would make submissions about why the appeal should be denied. And then the member makes a decision on based on everything that he or she has heard.
0: So leading up to the, to the hearing itself, um, is there an opportunity to speak with um, the hearings officer in advance to say, you know, I've given you all, you have all of my material now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what, what do you think? Like, is there an opportunity to have a discussion with them and, you know, do we need five hours here? Um, Uh Are there issues that you're having trouble with that we can emphasize? Is there, like, is there an opportunity to have any kind of a dialogue with them uh, in advance where, you know, they'll come to you and say, look, yeah, I've looked at the materials. I believe that, you know, I'm kind of on your side, but I just need clarification on these aspects. Um, You know, does that ever happen?
1: Absolutely. And again, it goes back to the, the specific minister's rep or hearings officer. Some are more keen to, to engage in, in those conversations than others. The other difficulty is I don't think they get their files very much in advance of a hearing. Because of of the amount of work that they have, there's usually not a hearings officer assigned to a particular file until... Fairly close to the hearing, uh, the hearing date. So, absolutely, I usually phone it one or two people that I deal with most often, and I say, "Whoever that is, can you tell me if this file's been assigned to somebody? I'd really like to have a conversation with them." I don't do it often, but if I if I think there are certain issues that we can get rid of, then absolutely I will, because there's no point in going through them if we can just resolve you know, uncontentious issues ahead of time. And then we can advise the member that we've resolved these issues. The minister no longer has issues with X, Y, Z, but they still do with these following aspects. And so we want to focus on that and the member will usually agree. Um, There are certain ministers, representatives who will have that conversation with me before the hearing. So it's a little bit last minute, but still helpful because it gives me a sense of where I need to go with my questioning, or where I need to focus my questioning, that would be most beneficial to convince the minister to change their mind. So, absolutely, those can happen.
0: It's nice to see that there's a little bit of flexibility built into the process.
1: You got to make friends. <laughs> so, I think it's. A, I think once you have a good reputation, and you build that relationship with the minister's representatives, I think those that makes for a facilitative environment. And they're really busy, Mark. So I think yeah. if we can get rid of some of the files that are obviously good cases that should be allowed, I think they're reasonable people and they're open to, to to having those discussions.
0: That makes sense. All right, so are we at the outcome stage?
1: I think we are.
0: Okay, so you've gone through it all. The member now makes a decision.
1: So the member can either make a decision at the hearing or they can do what's called reserve their decision, which means they're gonna think about it. They're gonna go away, think about everything that was said there today on that day and look at all of the documents that you provided and and give you a written decision later on. And um, so we talked about consent. So if the minister consents and that's an easy solution, the appeal is allowed. The other way to win your appeal is for the member to grant the appeal. And winning your appeal means the underlying visa office refusal gets set aside. It doesn't mean your person gets a visa right away. It means the visa office now has to reopen the file and they can't refuse on the same grounds that you won at the IED. So for example, if that was, uh, we don't believe your marriage is genuine, the IED has said, we do believe it's genuine, the visa office can't go back and say, we still don't believe you. So yes, it goes back to the visa office, but usually it's for processing of admissibility. So medical checks and you know police clearances and such. Um, the second option that the outcome at the IED could be that your appeal is denied, which means you've lost your appeal. And that's a, a, a really terrible situation to be in because once you've had an appeal denied, it's really hard to bring that person to Canada. And the reason for that is um, a, a legal concept called res judicata, which means you can't relitigate the same issues over and over again. And so once the IAD says, we don't believe you, or we don't believe your marriage is genuine, or in a parent situation, we don't think there's enough humanitarian reasons to let your parents come despite their medical condition, there's no reason why the visa office would decide otherwise. Why would they say differently than the IAD has said. So the visa office will forever say no, and you're not allowed to come back and appeal that over and over again to the IAD to have a second chance, third chance. You can only come back to the IAD to have a new appeal if there's been a material change in circumstances. And that's a very uh, difficult test to meet because the parties usually don't change their circumstances don't usually change. So it's really hard to convince the IAD that there's been a material change to warrant a new appeal. A really good example where that could succeed is is the couple, for example, having a child. That's a fairly material change in circumstances that might warrant a new appeal. So my point is losing the appeal is a really devastating situation because it forecloses really the possibility of bringing that person to Canada. And the way we deal with refusals at the IAD is to file a federal court judicial review. And so that's where the court reviews the decision to determine whether it was reasonable or not, um, to see if we can get that, the IED decision overturned. So those are the two main outcomes in a sponsorship appeal. Um, when we talk about removal order appeals at the IED, we'll talk about a third outcome, which is stays of removal. And that's when the IED sort of postpones their decision, um, for a period of time. And that usually comes out in criminality cases to make sure that somebody behaves themselves, for example. So, but for purposes of the sponsorship, you've got two outcomes, either the appeals allowed or the appeals denied.
0: And so I guess if you are going to federal court, I guess one important point is that it's not a, a place where you can bring in new evidence. That, exactly. that review is exclusively on what happened at the hearing itself.
1: Exactly. So the federal court was stuck with the records. So whatever you did at the IAD is what you can provide to the court. And the court will review what you provided and the decision that was made and determine whether that was reasonable or not. So nothing new at the federal court. You're right.
0: Okay. So when you get the, the appeal is allowed and then it's sent back, what, mm-hmm. what kind of timeframe you know, are people looking at
1: If it's sent back, you're usually looking at a few more months. I would say maybe three to six months for the visa office to reopen everything. And by this point, everyone's going to have to redo their medical exams, redo their police clearances. So it's going to take a bit of time and they're going to do background checks. So it's really those aspects that they're looking at. Um, But within a few months, that person should have their their visa absent any new issues that might Mm -hmm. arise, which seldom do, but you never know.
0: (laughs) Well, that's... That's awesome. Well, wow! Like this is this this episode's a little bit longer than we normally than we normally have. But when we get into the, uh, you know, we get down into the the root of this, and we're not just talking at the ten thousand foot level. There's a lot to talk about. There's and so much,
1: and I think we've just scratched the surface. Yeah,
0: and that's the nature of these. But uh, hopefully, the listeners have got a pretty good idea of what to expect, and I think that's sometimes the the procedural you know what happens, what's the process flow? If you're new to this, that's what that's what you don't have, you know, because uh-huh. you haven't gone through it, you haven't experienced it, you don't know what to anticipate. Sure, you can read everything and and understand generally you know how things are are supposed to play out. but yeah, but the the most important aspect is is connecting with someone who knows what they're doing, who's been there before, and having them explain, just like Reika has done right now. Um, at least at a fairly high level, what to expect, some of the problem areas, tips, you know, strategies, and things like that. Maybe if you could give us you know three takeaways, I guess that if you want the listeners who've who've hung in there with us, this extra long uh, podcast episode, three things for them to take away that you just really want them to remember if they're entering into this wonderful world of Ied appeals. what what would they be?
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say is, Not directly related to appeals, but but the application itself that gets submitted to the visa office. And the importance of having a really good application with no discrepancies, um, good detail, and really try to avoid coming to the IED in the first place should be people's focus. And I think getting some legal advice at the outset when you're filing that application um, would would serve you really really well if you're if you're doing that on your own. So that would be my first tip. The second uh, takeaway I would leave you with is to get advice. Really early on in the appeal process to to go see a a lawyer right at the outset when you get those refusals and talk about what's happened and really understand the process that you're going to face and what the next steps are and how you're going to deal with this this uh, appeal and what the issues are going to be to get that legal advice as soon as possible is really important. And part of that discussion, like we talked about, is do we proceed with the appeal? Do we refile? Are there legal issues? You know, is this, are you even properly going to the appeal or is this really a court application that we need to make? All of that can be discussed right at the beginning. So that would be my second tip. And my last tip is probably the preparation that we talked about, and that's crucial to a successful appeal. And I think most appeals fail because people are not properly prepared to provide evidence, they're not properly prepared to know what the issues are. And that really can, can sink an appeal when it otherwise should have been successful. Um, and we talked about the consequences of losing an appeal, which, which are really quite devastating. And if um, any of your listeners are practitioners or lawyers who wanted to, to start doing appeal work, and want to get well prepared, what I would really recommend they do is go and watch a hearing. So IED hearings are all public hearings. And as long as the appellant has no objection to you being there, sometimes they're sensitive, you know, uh, the, the topic is sensitive and there are things that they aren't comfortable talking about with witness or with people watching, but, for the most part, of their public hearings and it's really helpful to go watch a few hearings to see what's happening and how witnesses do. Um, but that could be part of uh, a lawyer's preparation and trying to learn how to do these appeals as well. So that, those would be my three takeaways.
0: Awesome. That's great. Thanks so much, Rika. You know, <clears throat> this is a, a topic that I've wanted to cover for, well, the, I think the podcast has been going about three years. And so to finally be diving into these issues um, is, is great. And I know we just completed quite a lengthy one on caregivers, which was also a longer episode. And I'm trying not to to trend in that direction. but there's just so much <laughs> to talk about when you're really providing good, solid, practical advice. yeah, thank you so much for being willing to share this. And as we go forward, I think next, what we're going to talk about is something we haven't yet addressed, but it's another, you know,, uh, I guess it's in the context of a sponsorship often. And it's uh-huh. this uh, section One Seventeen Nine D refusal uh-huh. that um, you know, that we commonly see. And uh, so we'll, we'll, I think that's the next one. Maybe we'll tackle in our next podcast within this series. And then after that, we're going to address basically in the following order, uh, the immigration division, the immigration appeal division. Um, uh, we're, yeah, w- with respect to the uh, the removal order appeals, um, the refugee protection division, and then we'll finish off with the refugee appeal division. So we've got a few coming here for those of you who are interested in getting into the uh, more of the litigation side, the appeal side of immigration. Which obviously that's our area as lawyers. That's that's one of the areas that's kind of uniquely ours, and that we're uh, ideally situated to uh, to represent folks with. So. Any- Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's advocacy and it's something that uh, lawyers are trained to do and are good at doing and uh, can really service your clients in a, in a way that they won't be able to or, or usually can't do for themselves.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, I think we can probably wrap up here for those of uh, you out there who are listening and are in this exact situation. Um, if you're looking to connect and they're out here in Western Canada and, and Reka. If they're, they're wondering, man, how do I hire Reka? What's, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Email um, email's probably the best. I'm on all of the social media, but my firm's called Karen and Partners, C-A-R-O-N and Partners. Um, my email is rmcnutt at karenpartners.com and that's the easiest way to reach me. Um, and maybe you can put my phone number Absolutely. in your show notes and then that. they can reach out to me that way as
0: well. Perfect. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Mark. We'll uh, see you again soon. Okay. Take Bye. care. Well, I think we had just a fantastic episode to start with in our series on immigration hearings and appeals. Reika really knocked it out of the park and I'm so grateful for her and her willingness to share her knowledge and experience. and You know, as immigration practitioners, this is the hardest part. We can read the law, we can read the policy, we can figure out, you know, substantively what we're supposed to be doing. But the reality is, it's the actual practice that eludes us. And unless you've been in the trenches, uh, you know, unless you've had experience actually going through these hearings... Uh, Sometimes it's hard to know how best to serve your client. And I'm really grateful that Ray has taken the time to share that with us. And this is just the beginning, folks. So stay tuned as we release more in our series on immigration hearings and appeals. Now, with that being said, I uh, am always looking for guests to join me. If you have an area of immigration that you'd like to uh, share insight. And really, this is what it's all about. It's all about sharing our experience and knowledge. to Just help elevate the, the immigration bar. Um, especially young lawyers I know benefit tremendously from the information that our more seasoned practitioners share with us. So I want to uh, once again uh, just give a shout out to all of my past guests who've given so much of their time and we've got some new episodes that are going to be released here shortly. Uh, Will Tao is coming up next and he's going to be talking about... um, the whole issues of international students and post-grad work permits and things like that. And I know you'll really, really enjoy, I guess it'll be episode 74, I think, that I'll be releasing here shortly. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but if you have a topic that you'd like to share your knowledge and experience with everyone else, please reach out to me at, uh, well, what's the best email? Probably my new firm email is probably the best. You can always get me at mark at com, or you can also find me um mholthy, H-O-L-T-H-E at holthelaw.com which is my email for my brand new firm which I am super excited about. Uh, just recently I, I jumped out uh, on my own and I shouldn't say that I'm on my own because I have had the wonderful pleasure of a new associate joining me in the Edmonton region Susan Wood and uh, I'm in the process of adding a whole bunch more people to to join my new little firm here. So The uh, website isn't quite launched. It should be launched here right away and then you guys will get an idea of what I've got planned. But uh, it's definitely going to be different than the way most law firms, at least in the immigration world, operate. So I'm excited about it. It's going to be awesome. So I'll leave you guys all in suspense. But this brings a close to episode 73 of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Um, And uh, I want to just... Let everybody know how much I appreciate all of uh, all of you who send me positive feedback, encourage me to keep doing this. Obviously, it's not a significant money maker for me, <laughs> but the reality is sometimes you just do things because you just want to help and you want to make the world a better place and as uh you know as goofy sometimes as that sounds that's gener- that's genuinely what's driving the ship here for me is just trying to make a difference in you know the within our immigration bar and contribute in ways that uh, maybe people just no- normally wouldn't do so if this is a way that i can give back uh, by creating a platform for all of the smart immigration lawyers out there to come and join me and share insight and give them a platform uh, really to to help grow their profiles because that's really what i want to do here is show all of the people out there, just how awesome immigration lawyers are and what they do to contribute and uh, really make this whole world of immigration here in Canada better and to help people who are vulnerable, help people that don't really have anywhere to turn. Um, and uh, it can be ruthless. And I'll probably have a whole new podcast on just how immigration has changed over the last few years. Uh, uh, I may just release one of those maybe even before the, the podcast with Will. Will. But at this stage anyways, it's good, good, kind people like Reka who have gone out of their way to share their knowledge. And uh, so that's what makes this podcast so awesome. And if they're willing to do that, then I'm going to do everything I can to plug the heck out of them all over the country and let people know where they are and how they can find them and, and, uh, and really help them. So that's kind of the goal. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap this episode up, but I will see you again as you all navigate this crazy world that we call Canadian Immigration.
2: Oh, Canada Greatest country in the world We want to share The richness of your soil This place I love in practice here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast